0: This is episode 60 of the Angry Tech News Podcast for Tuesday, May 23rd, 2023. This is the Angry Tech News Podcast at AngryTechNews.com. Now your host, the Angry Programmer with a mic, Ryan Benrose. I was doing all my research for this show and again came across way more stories than I got to uh, expect some of the ones, some of the more political ones uh, to go to the show where I send all of my uh, useless secondhand stories which will be tomorrow on Grumpy Old Benz. uh, But I probably shouldn't mention that they're saying, no, they're just the political ones. Um, And as I was uh, finishing up my writing on this, I started just last minute check and discovered that uh, Microsoft build 2023 conference is going on, which is something that I, that is a company I really enjoy listening to, or uh, ridiculing, not, not always listening to, but definitely reporting on, uh, as I typed out my notes for this, Satya Nadella was on stage, presumably shouting developers, 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 developers. If he does that, or actually, I don't know, uh, his predecessor, Steve Ballmer was way more entertaining on stage, but that's Okay. Nadella was almost certainly talking about stuff that I think I'll be commenting on next week. Uh, In other news, uh, I continue to get reports from people claiming that they tried to boost angry tech news using the podcast value for value uh, streaming Satoshi system and getting no route errors. And I'm at this point getting a little frustrated with that. Uh, Somebody said they boosted directly from the podcast index and got no route which is amazing considering that uh, I have taken steps and now have an official channel directly to between my node and the podcast index. And yes, I checked there's enough sats in it. Uh, So I don't understand why there's no route, but I I guess I'm getting bug reports that just say, Oh, my podcast app says no route. And uh, here's just something that I'll mention because it's the kind of thing you'd say to uh, as a developer, to a tester gives you a report like it failed that's not what we refer to as an unactionable bug report uh if your app, if you have this problem in your podcast app gives you some kind of error can you please send me the actual details of the error i do want to get this stuff fixed but i don't know how to make a better route than than a direct channel with the podcast network so i i'm feeling like there's obviously something going on here. Uh, I, I checked for configuration. No, You know what, if, if you've got lots of ideas, hit me up in the troll room and I'll tell you that I checked most of them. But you might have one that I haven't because when it comes to this Lightning Network stuff, I'm still uh, really novice and just flying by the seat of my pants and I don't have a big custodial network making everything work for me. So I guess these are what we call growing pains. From the where-did-you-go department, let's start with a data breach, shall we? It's been a bad year to be in IT at Toyota Motor Company. The company has recently, this week, disclosed a data breach on its cloud environment, which exposed 10 years of GPS location data for more than 2.1 million Toyota cars. The culprit, according to the company's Japanese-language blog post, which fortunately for me, I got a translation from... uh, a uh, bleeping computer. Thank you. Um, according to <laughs> the culprit was a database misconfiguration, which as far as blaming the it guy goes is only a couple steps away from calling it a glitch. After the discovery of this matter, we have implemented measures to block access from the outside, but we are continuing to conduct investigations said the blog post after uh, machine translation. The breach affected Toyota customers who use their T-Connect G-Link, G-Link Lite, or G-Book services. Uh, again, reading from Bleeping Computer, T-Connect is Toyota. I, th- I love Bleeping Computer because, frankly, they give the same kind of, of short-summarized give-me-the-technical-bits information that I want to do, which means, uh, you know, unlike somewhere like Ars Technica where I have to take 12 different paragraphs and translate, Bleeping Computer is just, yeah, here's the data, so I'm just going to read straight from them. T-Connect is Toyota's in-car smart service for voice assistance, customer service support, car status and management and on-road emergency help. The information exposed included in-vehicle GPS terminal IDs, vehicle chassis numbers, a.k.a. the VIN number, and the vehicle's GPS coordinates with timestamps going back 10 years. While there's no evidence that the data was misused, unauthorized users could have accessed the historical data and possibly the real-time location of 2.15 million Toyota cars. A second statement from the company also calls out that video recordings may have been taken also between 2016 and 2023 and videos, I I guess the videos from outside the car may also have been breached, but they don't know. They have no idea. They're still investigating. Okay. So I've done my time in corporate IT. I understand that every computer problem flows downhill and always lands on the dude named Ben. It's a thankless job, even when everything is going right it's downright hell when there's a breach because you're being blamed for everything, even when you're trying to figure out exactly what the hell happened. Seriously, guys, there is some minimum standards you've got to apply when you're in IT. I mean, screwing up the permissions on a database connected to the internet is a rookie mistake. I'm seeing it happen in quite a few data breaches lately. I'm just telling you, get better, be better, stop sucking. Uh, That is, no. I mean, okay, database misconfiguration on the internal backend database, I get it. You know, go send the intern, make him fix it. He's apparently the only person who's competent there, but on an internet facing one, really rookie mistake anyway. uh, But now uh, here's the real problem though. Storing 10 years of real time location data. Okay. First of all, storing all of that, that much data is a risk. And why would you do it? Unless of course you're trying to mine it for marketing, but why are you storing 10 years of everywhere that you went at every moment? It's, Remember, this data breach has the VIN number and a listed set of timestamps with timestamp and exact GPS coordinate. You can reconstruct everywhere everyone's been for the entire time from this data breach. That's scary. Storing all that data is a risk, but they're storing it on an internet facing machine. Why? Okay. Anyway yeah 2 million cars all every single trip ever taken this is a gold mine for corporate espionage it's it's also a gold mine for divorce lawyers trying to specialize in cheating spouses but anyway in the videos who knows i don't know maybe there's stuff in the videos we don't even know if they were breached but the funny thing is all this comes on the heels of yet another data breach last october from Toyota that exposed the data of 300,000 T-Connect customers. That one resulted in somebody committing a database access key, or resulted from, somebody committing a database access key to a public GitHub repository. Like I said, rookie mistake, what the hell IT? Anyway, like I said, bad year to be in IT in Toyota. I remember hearing a rumor when I was younger that in Japanese culture, it's more honorable commit suicide out your office window than to let down the corporation so for their sake i hope the it department at toyota is on the first floor from the we already found the best solution 100 years ago department by far the most science fiction story i saw this week involves a plan by the government of sweden to build a permanent electrified roadway on the E-20 between Halsberg and, I'm going to mess this up, Orobro, Orobro, (laughs) Orobro, for charging electric vehicles on the go. They still aren't exactly sure what form that the roadway, the electrified roadway, will take, an important detail, but they have narrowed it down to three possible methods. The first two methods involve running electrified wires parallel to the roadway, either via a third rail connector in the concrete or by catenary wires hanging above it. The rail method is more compact, a pair of parallel conductive rails or skids in the roadway that a vehicle lowers a sled onto, but is likely going to be higher maintenance. For example, rumor has it there's snow and rain in Sweden, and they haven't really discussed how that's going to work. Not to mention the obvious hazard from a wreck, or the hazard to anybody who's dumb enough to get out of their car. The catenary method puts the wires out of the range of accidents, pedestrians, and the weather, but requires each vehicle to have a boom arm sticking upward. I think the big problem with this one is it's unsightly to see those wires hanging over the roadway, which is an important consideration to the kind of investors who don't understand enough science or economics to look past the aesthetics of the project. Both of these methods are fairly well tested for dedicated cars, uh, vehicles or trains on fixed routes. For example, uh, Seattle has had hybrid diesel buses for decades that go all electric when operating in the downtown core because overhead wires are available. Uh, the third method that they're considering is much more sci-fi. They're going to they're talking about embedding induction coils into the roadway that can wirelessly charge a car passing over the top. This method does have the advantage that there's no metallic contacts grinding down at 100 kph. It has the disadvantage though, of being completely infeasible for reasons I outlined really thoroughly on Angry Tech News number five. For those of you who can't be bothered to go find Angry Tech News number five in the archive, I will be including the relevant story at the end of this show because it's really good stuff, but it's kind of long. So if you don't have the time or already heard it, just make sure to hit stop when you hear the outro music on this podcast. But economic infeasibility is only a problem if you're spending your own money. When your business plan only requires you to convince a gullible and scientifically illiterate socialist bureaucrat to waste years of tax money on a project before ultimately abandoning it as a failure while your company pockets all the proceeds, then frankly, the idea is brilliant. The company who sold this plan to the Swedish government says that it will be online by 2025 an aggressive schedule schedule to dig up 200 miles of the busiest road in the country and install millions of dollars of sensitive electronics equipment and all the associated infrastructure like high voltage lines running all the way down the road. But of course, once the road is finished, the project will be hailed as a great success. Even if nobody can use it, government projects don't actually need to be used by anybody for a politician to take credit after all, but to actually make the system useful, They would also need to retrofit every vehicle that will use the system, whether by installing a conductive sled, a raised aerial, or a conductive conductive coil in the bottom of the car. This will only be economical in commercial or government vehicles that run almost exclusively on the E20, basically meaning buses and lorries that have fixed routes. Of course, you probably won't get any benefit at all in your passenger car from this outrageously expensive project. The cost of retrofitting will certainly not be worth it for what you save over the lifetime of the car. And that is even if it's possible. Now I've got myself imagining an electric whip aerial sticking upward at twice the height of my sedan. From the getting the word out department, a really quick PSA for the iOS users out there. Apple released an out of band update yesterday to patch three critical zero day vulnerabilities in the OS being exploited in the wild, all related to the built in WebKit browser engine. Uh, CVE 2023 32409, a remote attacker may break out of the web content security sandbox. CVE 2023 28204, a processing web content may disclose sensitive information. CVE 2023-32373, processing maliciously crafted web content may lead to arbitrary code execution. All three of these are pretty bad. I went and read them. Uh, the, the arbitrary code execution is uh, uh, particularly bad if you're the kind of person who just randomly clicks on any link without thinking about where it goes. It, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to go into what the vulnerabilities are. You can read them from those numbers that I just gave you. And if you don't care to read them, then those numbers mean nothing. But all three of these are patched by iOS 16.5 and iPad OS 16.5. The Apple is uh, strongly recommending that you go out and patch your uh, OS immediately. Um, we are pretty sure here at Angry Tech we are pretty sure that Android devices are unaffected by these vulnerabilities, considering their Apple vulnerabilities. However, Android users may experience feelings of smugness at the misfortune of the Apple users, If this does happen, the Android users are urged to seek help immediately where medical personnel will be standing by with a list of Android vulnerabilities to help alleviate the symptoms. From the getting more words out department, another PSA, this time for Google users. If you have a Google account that you haven't used in a while, take heed. Starting in December, the company is going to start purging accounts that have not been used in at least two years. The company's blog post says they are doing this because old accounts are insecure. They often use old or reused passwords, may have been part of data leaks, and usually don't have two-factor authentication. As a result, the company says compromised old accounts are often used for scams and identity theft. Although, let's be honest, I'm not sure why a scammer can't just easily sign up for the new a new free account instead of trying to go get an old one. But what do I know? The other equally valid reason is to free up slots in the global namespace for people who want to use them. If, to pick a completely random example, if, say, your name is Darren O'Neill and you live in Dublin and somebody else grabbed Darren O'Neill at gmail.com back in 2012 and has been sitting on it this whole time, you'd be pretty miffed. Now, Google is finally adopting a use-it-or-lose-it policy. Starting in December, if you've had zero activity for two years, then your account along with all emails, documents, stored drive data will be deleted though. Of course not your advertising profile. Google still needs that to target you for ads to keep your account active. You need to read or send an email, transfer a file on Google drive, download an app from the play store, watch a YouTube video while logged in and uh, presumably without ad blocker. Would you kindly Uh, you need or, or use Google search while logged in or use your Google account to sign in with a third party service. As far as I can tell, merely using your Android phone doesn't count as activity under this definition, but using an app that calls Google Play APIs might just do it. Google is currently sending email notifications to inactive accounts, warning them about the new policy, although that seems like a long shot given that the accounts are inactive. They are also sending email or emails to Gmail recovery addresses if those addresses are set up. So, If you want to know if you're in danger, you should probably check that Yahoo account that you had back in 2014, just to be sure. From the digital FOMO department, this story a producer recently brought to my attention. On top of injecting ads into the most sacred parts of the OS, uh, for example, the control panel, Microsoft is also pre-installing malware. At least that's the story told breathlessly by multiple blogs and news articles on the topic. By the way, I got to say the, the actual patch that introduced this is two months old. Um, I missed it because I am thankfully not on windows 11. I don't know what the excuse is of all the blogs that are still freaking out about it. Maybe they're not on windows 11 either. As reported, after taking the March update to windows 11, users started getting notifications from the windows store app. TikTok just got installed. Check it out. Leading to many users to the alarming and completely reasonable conclusion that Microsoft is installing TikTok on your computer without your permission. What's actually happening is not quite so sensational as that, but still pretty slimy. First off, the app in question is a progressive web app, basically a web page wrapped into an installable package wrapped into a zip file that you download onto your system and it runs in a browser. So your browser, instead of Downloading all of the resources one at a time from the web, like it usually does with a web page, is pulling them out of the zip archive. But otherwise, it's just a web page packaged up. Um, and usually, the PWAs also don't have the browser UI or the Chrome. It's a new standard for apps because there's a lot of people out there who've never seen an actual line of computer code in their lives, but it allows them to write some declarative JavaScript UI in React or Angular and pretend that it's a computer program. Well, second, as Microsoft is quick to point out, the PWA for TikTok or for Spotify, Instagram, or any of a half dozen other things the Windows Store is pushing on you without asking is not actually being installed. What's going on here is Microsoft is pushing more of that discoverability, aka advertising that they love so much. What's on your start menu is merely a placeholder icon. If you click it, then the Windows Store seamlessly downloads the PWA and runs it. But the company wants to be very clear that as long as you never click the ad, I I mean icon, that the advertised app is not technically installed and doesn't use up any hard drive space. I don't know about you, but on my system, hard drive space is almost never the scarce resource. Desktop space, for example, is far more limited, as is my attention span. And Microsoft is stealing both by trying to put these ads in the operating system. That's a hell of a lot more egregious than wasting a few megabytes of storage in my book. I know I've taken flack from my position on this, but I'm going to repeat it anyway. You get to listen to a BEM rant. Advertising is theft. Not theft of money, but something much worse. Theft of your attention. A crime which, as somebody with adult ADD, I am acutely aware of when it happens. It's also theft of the most precious resource any human being has, time. We are born with a strictly limited supply. We never know how much it is, only that When it runs out, you're done and there's no way to get any more. And advertisers steal that daily from everyone for pennies. I just found a random article when I looked up that says YouTube charges between 10 and 30 cents to the advertiser for 30 seconds of your time. That's 12 to $36 per hour that they value your time. Not a bad wage for the average person, except you're not getting any of that money. Why not? It's your time being exploited, but YouTube is pocketing almost all of it. This is the textbook example of theft. Even the video creator, the reason you're at the YouTube site in the first place, is only getting a few fractions of a penny for all of your time. Without a second thought, we are taught to accept that this is just how our society works. That if you want to live in society, you have to accept the theft of your time and attention. I reject that. I do not willingly submit to advertising and I will not certainly will not pay money for any product that has as part of normal operation. And in addition to the purchase price steals my time and attention to sell that to advertisers. But Bemrose marketing is a fundamental part of the economics of capitalism. You like my whiny voice? Yeah, I'm good at it. I draw a distinction between marketing and advertising. Marketing in its basic economic sense is making information about a product available. Advertising, at least as I use the term, is a type of marketing which involves actively pushing information onto people who are otherwise not interested in a product in the hopes of getting them to engage. Marketing also includes passive things such as the name of a restaurant is marketing. Uh, Putting the restaurant in the yellow pages, yeah. Uh, The menu that you look at at the restaurant, you only look at that menu when you want food from the restaurant. That's marketing that is passive. It works. Marketing also includes word of mouth which I consider the most honest and effective form of marketing. But it's a method usually rejected by advertisers because it doesn't scale quickly. It can't be controlled or budgeted for. And because its effectiveness is so highly dependent on the quality of the product being pushed, which the marketing team usually doesn't have any control over. But Bemrose, how will you find out about new products as they come out? Well, I'll ask about new products when I want a new product. The best ones will come to me by word of mouth. And for the rest, I'll search for a product when I need it. That's when I'll find out. It might not be a new product by then, but it'll be new to me. And some products? Well, some products, I'll never find out about them this way. But that's okay by me. If I never learn about a product, that's prima facie evidence that I clearly never needed it. Angry thanks go out to Steve Edwards and Curtis Peterson for their fiat support of the Angry Tech News show, and to Joel W C Brooklyn Servo and and Servo a week later for contributing via streaming satoshis using a new podcast app at podcastapps.com. Angry Tech News is produced on the value for value model. We don't take sponsors, we don't play ads, and we do not charge you to listen but we are funded by your donations. If you received some value from listening to this show, please send some value back. Go to angrytechnews.com and click on the donate button. Send what this episode was worth to you. I like money, but I appreciate it even when it's only your time and attention. That's it for now. I'm Ryan Bemrose, the angry programmer with a mic. I'll be back next week with more Angry Tech News. This has been Angry Tech News. With the angry programmer Ryan Bemrose at angrytechnews.com. Stay angry. Stay angry. Stay angry. and from the never off the drawing board department governor gretchen whitmer of michigan recently took some time out of her busy schedule of destroying small businesses sending senior citizens to death camps and wiping her butt with a copy of the u.s constitution to think about her legacy michigan and detroit in particular used to be known as a mecca for gearheads the place where most of those beefy 70s muscle cars were manufactured where dreams and freedom were born etc etc Fifty years of inept leadership later, Detroit has become something of a crap hole. The auto industry moved out, leaving poverty and crime to fill the gaps. Whitmer wants to bring back those glory days, but in a green way. By making Michigan the mecca of electric vehicles move over Palo Alto, she can maybe distract people from the fact that she's the worst thing to happen to Michigan since Japanese cars. So the Michigan governor's office announced this week they are starting up an inductive vehicle charging pilot. They intend to be the first state in the U.S. to have public dynamic wireless charging for electric vehicles. Municipal bus and train systems all over the world already employ fully electric vehicles, which get their power from tracks or overhead wires. The technology is crude by comparison. The vehicle has a conductive shoe that slides along an energized wire, completing a circuit and powering the vehicle. Electric buses usually have a battery backup or a diesel engine so that they can go places the wires aren't. This, however, is different. Electric cars for the public go places that buses won't and trains simply can't. Michigan wants to create a road initially one mile long with inductive chargers embedded in the roadway so that electric vehicles, equipped with wireless charging pads on the bottom, can charge while driving along the road. The whole thing sounds very green and very Silicon Valley. I'm sure it's the kind of pitch that brings in millions in venture capital. It's all very fantastical. Root word fantasy. Okay. So a brief primer on where we are with wireless transfer of energy. This is distinct from wireless communication, where the amount of energy only needs to be high enough to overcome the resistance and be detectable on the other end. Charging batteries requires much higher power circuits. Oh, you'll hear jargon about resonant induction circuits and localized magnetic particles, but the most important thing you need to know here is that putting energy into a battery is limited by the law of conservation of energy. No matter how all that energy gets there, it all has to be pushed across the interface. In the case of wireless charging, that interface is electromagnetic waves. If you're talking about wireless charging a phone using the Qi interface, they charge by direct magnetic induction. The charge pad creates an alternating magnetic field, which crosses the gap between charger and phone and causes electrons to move inside the phone circuitry. Those electrons are put through a circuit with, with diodes and capacitors and other things, which ultimately convert that motion into a stored charge in the battery and energy is transferred. Magnetic induction follows the inverse square law. If you double the distance between the connectors, your power transfer drops to a quarter. This kind of power transfer is only really viable to a distance of a few millimeters, which is why every Qi wireless charger pretty much requires that the phone be touching the charger and in exactly the right way. Add to that, phones have an extremely low power requirement, at least compared to cars. Modern USB fast charging uses around 2 amps at 5 volts. Power is volts times amps, so this gives a theoretical maximum of 10 watts. In practice, it's always lower due to efficiency losses. Some manufacturers will use non-standard super duper ultra amazing fastest speedy chargers that pull 25 or even 50 watts, but those don't adhere to the USB spec and often come with scary warnings about only using the adapter sold by that company. Induction chargers waste a lot more power than corded, usually around 70% of the efficiency of an equivalent wired charger. The other 30% is converted to waste heat in your house. At these low power levels, that waste is acceptable to normal people, or at least the ones who aren't counting every molecule of carbon and thinking they're somehow saving the planet with it. Compare that to electric cars using Level 2 charging, widely considered the minimum viable charging solution for a daily use vehicle. A typical Level 2 charger provides 40 to 48 amps at 240 volts for power use around 10,000 watts. Even at that power level, it can take several hours to charge a battery. Why is this important? Aside from the obvious impact to your electric bill, the heat generated by an electric circuit is I-squared R, or the resistance multiplied by the square of the current. Doubling the current double, generates four times the heat for a given voltage. Higher heat dissipation means more expensive components, bigger wires, better materials, heat sinks, fans. You know what? Let me come back to the heat thing. So what about distance to the charger? I said millimeters. Not even the most hipster lowering kits bring your car that close to the ground you'd tear your battery off the first time you drove past one of Michigan's famed potholes. Well, that problem at least is solved. Sort of. There are wireless vehicle charging technologies coming onto the market in the next few years, which use the idea, an idea known as an LC resonance. The charging electronics oscillate an inductor capacitor circuit to create a standing wave between the car and the charge pad that can transfer energy with efficiency comparable to regular induction charging over a distance of up to maybe a meter. The resonant frequency must be tuned depending on the distance between the two couplings and their angle. Many electric vehicle companies are already testing out prototypes of this technology. A car equipped with this static wireless charging system parks on top of a charging pad built into a parking space. The charging computer negotiates the distance, voltage, angular, resonant frequency, and within a few seconds the battery is charging. To be clear, this is a legitimately cool technology, and not just for its ability to stain the front of EV enthusiast trousers. I wasn't able to find any data on the cost of such a situation as none are for sale yet. But assuming the physics work out the way they say, the technology is available, and the cost isn't that much compared to what already goes into an electric car. Within a few years, I can imagine this replacing wired chargers. Instead of a cord on the wall or on a post, you drop a rubber mat onto the floor of your garage or install it into the asphalt underneath one of those EV charging parking spaces. It's even a win for convenience. No more plugging in your car. Just park it in the usual spot, and it's charging. But this static charging isn't what Governor Whitmer is proposing. Michigan wants to install a system called dynamic charging, where electric cars are powered by the road while in motion. This, I think, is a pipe dream. The Michigan proposal for how they intend to do this is pretty short on details, and... But maybe we can take a cue from how the Indiana Department of Transportation plans to implement this. According to a July announcement, um, oh, so much for Michigan being first, the Indiana Department of Transportation has partnered with researchers from Purdue University and a German company called MagMent to create a stretch of dynamic charging roadway. In both cases, the performance of the system is going to depend a lot how it's used. I think it's safe to say that if you want the system to be useful, you need to install it in a high-traffic area like a downtown core. Recall that the LC Resonance Charging System requires that the car charging receiver be coupled to a plate on or in the ground to receive energy. The plates don't usually move with the car, so the idea behind the NDOT proposal is to create a row of charging segments, each around a meter in diameter, that the car dynamically couples to while it's driving. Time for some napkin math. Let's suppose a vehicle is traveling 45 miles an hour on this road. Not quite highway speeds, because let's face it, downtown has plenty of traffic. 45 miles an hour is about 20 meters per second, so that makes the math easy. Car is passing over 20 of these segments per second. That means the car has about 50 milliseconds to couple with the plate, a process which took a few seconds in the static tests, and transfer a meaningful amount of power before the car has already moved on to the next plate. So let's talk charge time. In the static and plugged-in case, it can take many hours to charge the vehicle, but while you're on the move, you don't necessarily need to charge. You just need to get enough power that the batteries aren't discharging. Well, level one EV charging takes about 12 hours to charge up and gives you to what? 200, 250 miles of range. So about five hours of driving. So that's not going to cut it. Your road's going have to have to be le- level two or better to break even. Okay, let's talk heat dissipation. This is a problem pretty well solved for cars. The internal combustion engine generates a hell of a lot of heat, a lot more than electric vehicles. Well, when they're not on fire, at least. And cars have a system of circulated coolant and radiator fans to vent that heat to the outside air. It's a pretty well-understood technology. Uh, Let's assume that 70% efficiency number quoted before for induction charging. Your 10,000-watt L2 charging pad is going to be dumping about 3 kilowatts of waste heat to charge, or about the same as three portable space heaters. By the way, this is probably true of that wireless pad in your garage, too. Great for those winter tinkering projects you'll never have to heat your garage. Roads generally rely on passive cooling, though. I suppose actively cooled roads are an option, but that would increase the already huge cost of these things even higher than I'm willing to speculate. The best passive coolers generally make use of heat sink fins with a material like aluminum to dissipate heat. The thermal conductivity of aluminum is a little over 200 watts per square meter. By comparison, the thermal conductivity of concrete is about one and a half watts per square meter. Less once the concrete gets covered with something insulating like dirt or rubber. Let's go back to that Indiana project. The Magment website has no technical details at all about how it works, a huge red flag in my book. But the page does show a neat picture of road segments with, quote, magnetized particles mixed with concrete. From the Tech Explore article where I found this, quote, The Magment page claims that their product is able to transfer power from the road to a vehicle with 95% efficiency. They also claim that it can withstand all weather conditions, has a high degree of thermal conductivity, is safe from vandalism, and does not cost more to use than standard road building materials. (coughs) Bullshit. (coughs) It's also about as believable as the Enron quarterly report or a Facebook fact checker. Especially that last part, costs no more than standard building materials. That's the same kind of fuzzy math as saying $4 trillion of pure inflation is basically free. I'll believe it when I see it, but I digress. Another gem from that article, quote, Also unclear is how such a road would be electrified and whether the roadways would be safe for pedestrians. I think that seems like it'd be a priority. Ultimately, the effectiveness of a road technology depends on how many roads you can get it into. If you only build one mile of these, they won't be very useful. have to enable electric charging on hundreds of miles of road for it to even be worth refitting a commuter car. How many millions of miles of roads are in Michigan? What percentage of those do you think they'll have to refit before they can equitably justify charging every resident of the state the huge bill for this installation? I dug pretty deep in trying to find estimates of the cost of building these wireless charging systems, Even the companies touting the near availability of static wireless charging pads and whose marketing was on overdrive about how much they were saving the planet were unwilling to cough up how much their new systems would cost. I guess they assume that EV owners aren't particularly cost conscious. There were likewise no numbers for the cost of the government projects, but you can assume it will be high and you may also assume that you'll be paying for it through higher taxes or inflation. It's hard to reason about cost without knowing more details about how these panels work. With fancy electronics in each one, they could cost tens of thousands of dollars per panel. I'm going to throw out some arbitrary numbers, Uh, call them educated guesses, or uneducated if you prefer. Let's assume each road panel is just a substrate with some coiled high voltage wire and a buried lead back to a central controller. Maybe a thousand dollars per panel for raw materials. Add 4000 per panel for installation by a unionized construction crew. Remind me to rant sometime about the 1931 Davis Bacon Act. A four-lane road at 1,600 panels per lane per mile. Throw in the controllers, probably need those every tenth of a mile at an easy 200000 each. And you're looking at a cool $40 million for one mile of road, on top of the $3 million or so that it already costs to build a mile of asphalt road. I can take some educated guesses about maintenance, too. The number one budget item for most states' Department of Transportation is road maintenance, and many of those states where count the potholes as a common pastime aren't doing a very good job. Concrete and asphalt roads can last a decade or more with almost no maintenance depending on traffic. When a road heats and cools during the day-night cycle, it eventually develops cracks. A few cracks are okay, but eventually those cracks get water in them, which can freeze and expand, forming larger cracks, potholes, and generally making the roads fail. But if your roads have high voltage wires in the concrete, those initial cracks can become a massive point of failure, at best causing short circuits and popping breakers whenever it rains, and at worst creating an electrical hazards for pedestrians and people who use the road. In addition, you're creating space heaters that run the hottest during rush hour. And it goes without saying that fixing these things will probably be a little more involved than rolling a cement truck and closing a lane for an hour. Again, I can only speculate, but maintenance for these things will be astronomical. And finally, there's a question of who's going to pay for all that energy. If it's not just the taxpayers, then add the cost of administering the tolling system. But that's more political than a technical question. The last point I want to bring up is whether this is a good thing at all. A system like this will certainly use some kind of authentication system. The road won't give you a watt of power until you've told them who you are and they've checked a central database to determine whether or not you're allowed that power. The most common reason you wouldn't be allowed is because you're a deadbeat without enough credit to pay. Tesla already implements a system like this with their supercharging system. With one poke of their database, they can, at their sole discretion, deny you access to charging stations, block updates, turn off features in your car, and even remotely shut it down completely. Full disclosure, I don't own a Tesla. Once that switch exists, it's not your car anymore. It's not under your control. The people who do control your car can flip that switch for any reason. Maybe you said the wrong thing on Facebook. Maybe you clicked the wrong search result in Google. Or maybe... Your phone's location records indicate that you were in the wrong place at the wrong time, say, Washington, D.C. when Trump is in town, or Kenosha, Wisconsin, when a peaceful protest breaks out and burns down half of downtown. Or maybe you were just guilty of having been born with the wrong skin color. It's not for you to ask. It's just for you to put up with whatever they decide. It often feels like I'm talking to a wall when I make this argument because I'm arguing against convenience and because most people think, oh, they'd never do that. Five years ago, I had that faith too, but if the cancel culture of the last few years, along with every security story that I brought to this show, can't convince you, I guess you're just going to have to roll the dice and risk learning the hard way. By the way, while researching this story, I came across an article from Cambridge Day in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where the city is removing many of its overhead catenary cables that supply their electric buses with power from the street. The grid electric fleet is being retired in favor of battery electric buses that get charged overnight at the bus barn and are completely autonomous once they leave the barn. The city has already retired all of its diesel-powered buses and are phasing out its buses that run on natural gas within the next few years. The goal is to go to a 100% zero-emissions bus fleet, apparently discounting the coal and natural gas plants that power the grid, which charges the buses overnight. But there is a hitch. It turns out it gets cold in New England during the winter, who knew, and bus riders would like the buses to be heated. Not a problem when the power is supplied from the grid, or from an internal combustion engine that's producing a heat anyway, but as EV owners know, heating up an electric vehicle costs you battery power, which means it costs you range, up to 50% according to Cambridge Day, and the all-electric buses don't always have enough battery to both heat the bus all day and complete their daily routes. So what's their solution? The zero emissions Cambridge battery bus fleet are being fitted with supplemental interior heaters, which run on diesel to heat the buses so that the batteries can be used to run the route.